You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you were with us last week, you will remember Pastor Chris kicked off a study looking at what is called Jesus' Farewell Discourse. It, it covers this from when Jesus leaves the upper room at that last supper until he's arrested and then ultimately killed. And if you remember, or you can imagine, this space between the time of the last supper and the time he's arrested is incredibly special. It's precious. It's sacred space. The great irony is, as we read in the other Gospels, the disciples are completely oblivious to what's happening. They understand at some point Jesus is going to die, but they have no idea how imminent his death is. But all throughout this discourse, we discover that Jesus is fully aware. Jesus is painfully clear on what's about to happen to him. And so he takes this opportunity as they walk from the garden or from the upper room to the garden to comfort and encourage his disciples. And in fact, as he goes, he gets incredibly practical. Now, by this point where we pick this up in chapter 15, Jesus and his disciples have left the upper room. They are on the move. And as they go, I said, Jesus is going to get extremely practical about what the disciples are supposed to do in his absence. He is going to be painfully clear. In fact, if you've been reading the Gospel of John with us up until this point, some of you I know have expressed this to me, you've been incredibly frustrated about how esoteric and vague Jesus has been. Everybody that tries to pin Jesus down on some sort of action, Jesus constantly pivots. The only thing Jesus has told us to do so far is trust him. But we go, how do I do that? What does that look like? What does that mean? In this chapter, Jesus is going to get very explicit. In fact, I will argue that this is the most practical section in the entire gospel. And what it is, is this. What does it mean to be a Christian? How are we supposed to live? What does it look like to do this Christian thing? It can all be summed up in one word. Remain. Remain. Some translations have it as abide. Others say to continue in or stay. But it's this idea of not moving. To simply sit in and be connected to. To be in sync With him. In fact, this one word, as we're going to read today, it comes up 11 times in seven verses. It's just all over the place. He just continues to beat it in. Remain, 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 remain in me as I remain in you. If you want to know what Christianity is all about, if you've been trying to figure this out for the longest time and you're like, I don't get it. I tried picking this book up, I tried making sense of the whole thing, I've gone to church for a while, I don't get it. I'm telling you, today is going to be the most practical sermon you've ever heard. And it can all be summed up in one word. Remain. But what does it mean to remain? How do we do that? 
As I said, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to unpack that entire idea, this entire sermon. And so, to do that, we're going to look at John 15. So, if you have it open, great. If not, it is on page 737 in your Bibles. You can also pull it up on the app if you're tech-savvy like that. Um, But if, for whatever reason, you don't want to read and you just want to kick back today, that's okay. We will also throw it on the slide. So you can pay attention that way. As you're turning there, let me give you a little heads up of what we're going to see. In this chapter, Jesus does three things. First, he's going to give us a metaphor to help explain what he means by remaining. And I'm going to tell you, I think this metaphor is incredibly helpful. And then after the metaphor, he goes into the benefits of remaining. What do we get out of it? How does this affect us? And then finally, he's going to move from the metaphor into highly practical teaching. And in fact, we're going to spend the vast majority of our time this morning just unpacking his highly practical teaching and trying to make it even more practical for you. In other words, you should walk out this door today and be like, I not only know what it means to remain, but I can begin practicing that. That's what we're aiming for today. So again, we're in John chapter 15. First, we're going to look at the metaphor, then we're going to look at the benefits, then we're going to unpack it. John 15, Jesus says this, I am the vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Therefore, remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so this is the metaphor. And what he's getting at, I think, is just succinctly summed up in verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. So long as we're connected, so long as I remain in you and you remain in me, you're going to be able to produce fruit. You are going to be transformed from within. It's going to affect you. But if you are disconnected from me, you are like a tree that shrivels up and withers up and dies. I mean, it's a really simple metaphor. But his point is this. There is to be an intimate connection between us and him where we receive from him, and out of receiving from him, we are then capable of producing. You see that? You can't produce apart from him. No twig just grows out of nowhere and goes, here's some fruit. It's not how it works. Even those of us who never grew up around farms know that's how it works. But I started thinking about this week. Jesus primarily gave this metaphor, if you want to call it that, to a bunch of people living in an agrarian society. And so I just started kicking around, what if Jesus was in our context? How would Jesus make this metaphor stick for us? And this may be absolutely terrible for you, but that's okay, this, this worked for me. And so I, I thought about this. I think if Jesus was with us, Jesus would pull out his phone, because yeah, Jesus has a phone. Huh? If he's living today, and he's gonna do this, he's gonna pull out his phone, And then he's going to point to the cell tower. And he's going to tell the disciples, boys, I am the tower, you are the phone. (laughs) Stick with me. So long as you stay connected to me and I stay connected to you, you can do some pretty incredible things. 
limitless power. But if you are disconnected, if we are having connection issues, if you are out of sync, or you decide to go it alone in airplane mode, you are nothing more than an expensive calculator. Huh? I'm pretty fun. You'd be surprised how long it took me to come up with that. <laughs> so this is Jesus' point. And regardless of what analogy you like, whether you like the cell phone one or you like the plant one, the idea is this. There is to be an intimate connection between us and him. And out of what we receive from him, we are then able to produce. That's the basic idea. If we do not connect to him, if we are disconnected in some respect, we wither up and die. As Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, he gives us the benefits, if you will, of this type of relationship or the benefits of being connected to him. Verse 6, he says, If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are then picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. However, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Did you catch that? Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you would bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So what he's getting at here is this. When we are in sync with him, when we are connected to him, when his words become our thoughts, when our minds become completely saturated with his ways, we become a natural extension of him. In other words, it becomes obvious in our lives. We bear fruit. Specifically, as he says, when we are in sync with him, when we are connected with him, when our minds are completely saturated with his thoughts, his will, his desires, we naturally begin to see the world as he sees it. And therefore, when we see the world as he sees it, we begin to desire the same things he desires. And so naturally then, when we pray, we pray completely in line with his will, and so of course he's going to answer those prayers. We're working in sync with him. We're a natural extension of who he is and what he is like. This is the idea of the plant. The plant is still working. We're just a little offshoot, and we can tap into that. Okay, but how do we do that? How do we stay connected? This is where, right, we're longing still for this practicality. I think we understand the metaphor, but what do we do with it? The next few verses, Jesus makes this more clear. Verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as, the father, or just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And this is my one command, love. Love each other as I have loved you. In other words, Jesus says through this, if you want to understand what it means to remain, if you want to understand what it means to be in sync with another person or remain connected to another person, Jesus says, look at the way I stay connected to the Father. 
Look at the way I am in sync with him. In fact, this is a fascinating study. If you want to go back and, you know, nerd out for a little bit, go back through the gospel of John and just look at the way Jesus is dependent upon the Father. He never makes a move or an action. He never expresses anything out of his own will or desires. He's constantly receiving, and out of receiving, he then produces. He receives, and then he shares. Specifically, he gets the Father's love, and out of receiving the Father's love, he is then able to go and love us. And Jesus says that's exactly how it's supposed to work. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. It's getting explicit here. How do you remain? You obey his command. Okay, what is the command? Verse 12. My command is this. Love. Love each other as I have loved you. Church, this command is brilliant. I mean, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but in this one sentence, Jesus takes the entirety of Scripture and sums it up. In one sentence, we get a clear picture of who God is, who we are, what life is all about, what is the purpose, how are we supposed to live. It's all right here. You don't need a complex theology. You don't need a master's degree. You don't even need to have ever gone to a Bible study. This one verse is enough for you to develop a comprehensive theology. Who is God? The one who loves us. Who are we? God's beloved. What are we supposed to do? Love other people specifically as we have been loved. It doesn't get more practical than this. How are we to live? We're to love. Well, how do we do that? We receive love. Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is explicit here. You can't mince words on this. What does it mean to be a Christian? Receive love, give love. That's it. Okay, but how do we do that? Again, I I get this, right? Like, I sit in these sermons all the time, and, and, and my mind constantly goes to, okay, but what does that look like when I walk out those doors? How do I do that? I want to spend the rest of our morning unpacking it. Okay, so just looking at this last sentence, love each other as I have loved you, I realize in order for us to accomplish this, three things have to happen. Do you catch this? There's three things. First, in order to go and share love, you first have to receive love. But in order to receive love, you have to know what love is, or specifically how you've been loved. In other words, there is an intellectual dimension to this command. There is a personal dimension to this command. And finally, there is a practical dimension to this command. We learn about love. We sit in that love. We then share that love. It flows through us. So I want to take each of those little dimensions of this command and continue to unpack them. Okay, so the first one is, before we go and share love, we need to know what love is. How has Jesus loved? That's a big question. Well, if you keep reading, you're going to notice that in verses 13 to 17, Jesus spells that out plain as day. Look at what he says. Greater love has no other than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. 
I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, you become a natural extension of me. And in my name, the Father will give it to you. This is my command. Love each other. Okay, I want to leave this slide up there, please. Because I, I want you to look at this. Jesus, in this section, is actually going to explain for us how love works. Or specifically, how he loves us. This is far from an exhaustive list. But I think as I reflected on this section, I think there's at least three ways we see Jesus loves us. The first is in that first section, greater love has no other than this, than to lay down one's life for your friends. Typically, when we think about how has Jesus loved me, this is the one that comes to mind, right? The cross. Jesus sacrificially gave of himself for us. We live because he died. And and he's right. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for another. I mean, this is a bold claim, but you need to realize that's not the only way Jesus has loved you. It's a profound way, and you could have a theology simply built on that one command, but if you do, you're missing out on the fuller picture. See, God loves you so much more than even that, and that's where the second part comes in. Verse 15 He tells us he has changed the status of our relationship. Do you catch that? I no longer call you slaves or servants. Instead, I call you friends. Do you know in the Old Testament, only two people were ever called God's friend? Abraham and Moses. And in that case, if you go back and look at the context of Abraham and Moses, it's the same as what Jesus is saying. To be a friend means you are privy to one's innermost thoughts. You are privy to their self-disclosure, their thoughts, their frustrations, their ideas, their plans, their hopes, their desires. And if you go back and you again read through this gospel, you're going to realize Jesus has been doing this from the very beginning. His whole mission has been about self-disclosure, helping us understand who he is, who the Father is, what he's up to in the world, what he desires for us. All of it from the beginning. I mean, think back to chapter 1. In Genesis, or excuse me, in John chapter 1, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are this. Come and see. Jesus, what are you about? Where are you going? Come and see. And then as we moved into chapter 2, we had that whole water to wine thing. And in that story, Jesus again implicitly reveals his true nature. He is the Messiah who has come to bring the new covenant. And then he goes and he replaces the temple. And then as we continue to see more and more of him, he not only reveals himself to be the Messiah, he not only reveals himself to be the source who can meet every single desire of our heart, He not only then desires or shows himself to be the one who can guide us into all truth, but then his ultimate claim at the end of chapter 8 is he says, I am God. I mean, this is this continual self-revelation that Jesus offers us. You don't do that to people you call your servants. You only do that to your friends. And so Jesus says, I've changed the status of our relationship. We're friends. 
I'm revealing myself. And church, don't miss this. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to condescend to be with us. God could have simply sat on high, barked down some orders, said, hey, get your stuff together. Fix it. But instead, he comes and he enters into our midst. And he enters humbly and he invites us into a relationship with him. And through that relationship, he continues to reveal himself. I mean, that is insane. Have you ever stopped to think about that aspect of how God loves you? But even that's not the only way Jesus says he has loved us. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me. I chose you. In other words, no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't get on Jesus' team. Remember back to flashbacks to elementary school? You're standing there on the line, hoping, pleading, begging, dear Lord, let me get picked for this team, right? And so you would barter and you would trade with the kids standing on the line. I'll let you throw the ball more. I'll do it. I'm really good. I'm better than so-and-so. Like you would do everything to get onto the line, get onto the team. And then there's like six of you in this room who are always chosen first and the rest of us hate you. I just want you to know. You never had to experience this. Okay? But for the rest of us, do you remember that time? And Jesus is making it clear. You could have never gotten on my team. You were never good enough. Because of your failings, because of your shortcomings, because of your weaknesses, you aren't good enough. I would have never, you would have never earned a spot. Didn't matter though. I chose you. Why? If you ever stop to consider this, because in all of creation, in the grand scope of the universe, why would God choose you? Because you matter to God. You have worth. You have value. So much so that he didn't just allow you to flop off into the distance. But he pursued you. He sent his son for you. What? And then again, to stretch the team analogy just a little further... You remember getting on that team, and those of you we hate, I'm going to tell you why we hate you even more. <laughs> Typically, the kid that got picked first dominated the team. Remember this? They hogged the ball. They took all the shots, and we were really just cannon fodder for the rest of the other team. We were just there to get in the way. We weren't remotely useful in any way. We didn't ever actually get to play. Jesus says, I didn't just pick you on my team so you could sit on the bench and watch me go do stuff. I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. I picked you because I want you to go play. I want you to get in the game. I'm going to pass you the ball. I want you to have fun. I want you to experience the fullness of the kingdom. I want you to understand what I'm offering you and enjoy it. Get in it. Let's play. Again, mind-boggling especially when you consider your track record. <laughs> I'm assuming yours is similar to mine, and it's really not all that impressive. I don't love well. I'm not the kindest person at all times. I'm actually incredibly selfish and good-looking. It's just my flaws in life, okay? <laughs> but the point is, Jesus, in the midst of this, looks at me and says, John, I love you so much. I don't just want you on my team. I want to put you in. And I go, are you sure, coach? Yeah, you're going to take the shot. Okay, that's crazy. 
But you got to, again, understand this isn't even the only ways Jesus loves us. I mean, the truth is, look, I've been studying this thing for a while. I have a bachelor's and a master's degree, believe it or not, in Bible. It's kind of weird. I'm a nerd. I get it. I've put a lot of time into studying this. I've read way too many books on the subject at times. You want to know the one thing I've learned? I know nothing. (laughs) The only thing I've come to understand is the depth of our understanding of God is pretty comparable to the depth of our understanding of the universe. There are certainly some things that we can grasp. There are some fundamental truths that we are able to understand and internalize. But the truth is, we've only begun to scratch the surface of knowledge of the universe. And the same is true of God. Another analogy somebody said, and I thought this was really good, it's like going to the edge of the pier. And you stand out there and you look, and it looks like all you see is water all over the place. And you think, man, I have such a huge glimpse of the world. Until you realize you can't even see past Catalina. (laughs) Have you ever been on a cruise ship in the middle of the ocean? It's terrifying. I mean, I really, I remember having this this feeling of being like, uh, there's no land there or there. It just goes for miles. That's our glimpse of God. We understand some. I don't want to negate the fact that we understand some, but it's really just a drop in the bucket. We don't understand as much as we like to think we do. And so church, the number one thing is this. If you are going to remain connected to Jesus, if you're going to be in the vine, you have to have a continual knowledge of who Jesus is, what he is up to, how he works, what he has done in the past, and what he is continuing to do in the lives of all of his people. We have to continue to understand the depth of his love for us. It's not just that he died on the cross. It is far richer than that. And I'm not just trying to make a funny point in the midst of this. I honestly have come to discover I know very little. But as I continue, he continues to reveal himself to me. And it's incredible. So you've got to, if you want to receive, it starts by intellectual study. You have to be a student of the king. You have to learn. And so, yes, primarily that comes from reading Scripture. Absolutely. It's, it's, our, it's, our, it's our primary source. But it's not just Scripture. Part of it is engaging in the lives of other brothers and sisters and seeing how is God working in your life? What is God up to? How do you see God doing things? It's also looking back at church history. How has God worked throughout the history of time? That's how we're going to begin to get a deeper understanding and appreciation for his love. Okay, but here's the thing. When Jesus says we are to love each other as he has loved us, we don't simply take our knowledge and then put it into practice. If we do, we skip a step. Because notice he says, love each other as I have loved you. There is a personal dimension to this command as well. You are to take this love and allow it to, I want to say infect, but that's probably not the best word, to get inside you and begin to transform you from within. It should be revolutionary. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we allow what Jesus is doing and up to to actually begin to penetrate our hearts? Well, the short, simple answer is this. you got to stop moving. You have to simply sit in it. You have to reflect To use Jesus' language, you have to chew on him. 
And as you chew on him, allow him to begin to infect you in your head. Again, bad choice of words, but you get the idea. Is there a positive version for infect that I can use? Anybody? Permeate. Well, that's more syllables. Um, we'll, but thank you, teacher. All right. Moving on. Permeate is where we're going with this one. A few weeks ago, when we talked about this section of John's gospel where Jesus says, you got to, you know, eat my flesh, drink my blood, we're like, what's up with that? And if you remember, I made this point that so often we pick up the Bible and we read it and then we shut it, walk away, and go on with our day and not think about it anymore. Or when we pray, we drop our laundry list off at God. God, I need you to fix this, that, the other thing. Thanks. Can you have it done by Friday? Wonderful. And again, we move on. But what Jesus gets at in the midst of this is if we're ever going to experience the fullness of his life, if we're ever going to understand the depth of his love, it can't simply be an intellectual exercise. We have to take what we read, we have to take when we take those times of prayers, and we've got to sit in it and allow it to permeate our minds, chew on it in such a way that as we set the book down and we go into our workplaces... Jesus' words are in our mind and so that he begins to inform and shape the very decisions that we make with other people. This is what he's getting at in this. Okay, so again, how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, again, I want to be practical with you, so here's some tips. The very first is this. There's no one right way. Okay, everybody connects with God in different ways. There are some surfers that just go out and sit in the ocean and they pray and that's their space. For my wife, that would be terrifying because all she would think about is a shark coming and biting her the entire time. See, everybody meets with God in different ways. The point is this, you've got to figure out what works for you. You've got to figure out those spaces and those times when you can carve it out and intentionally sit in his presence. The two primary ways that people typically sit and reflect in God's presence is this. Worship, and then these things called devotionals. Let me start with worship. By worship, I mean this space. By coming together as brothers and sisters, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about why do we do this. It's not just because your mom said it was a good idea or God's out to get you if you don't show up. That's not how it works. The reason we come into this space, the reason we continue to gather and we, we worship together is to be reoriented. To be mindful of who God is because throughout our day, throughout our weeks, we always wander and we need to be refocused. And if you think about it, everything from the creed to the songs to the sermon to the sacraments to the benediction, everything is about refocusing us so that for an hour, hour and a half, we simply sit and receive chew on what it is that God is saying. Look, I get that you can also sit in this space, though, and just zone out. I get that it's easy to start planning your grocery list. It's easy to just pull up Facebook and start scrolling through. And I know there's one of you right now that's feeling immense guilt. (laughs) I see you. Look, sometimes we need that space. Frankly, I'll just admit, sometimes we enter into this worship space and life is just so crazy, so chaotic. We don't want to think, we just want to sit and be. And as the guy who preps sermons for this space, I can tell you I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that under a couple conditions. That as you enter into this space, if you need to disconnect and you need to be, that's fine so long as you recognize first and foremost, this is a space given to you by God. This is meant to be something refreshing to you. 
Don't feel guilty about it. Don't feel shame in it, but receive it as a gift from God. But secondarily, I would hope that even if you're not taking the space here, that you're taking some space elsewhere to sit and receive from the Lord. Also, if every week you're coming into this space and just vegging and not paying attention, that says something else about your life and your pace. And you probably need to start making some shifts in your changes, okay, so that you have more space to be able to do this. God didn't expect you to burn the candle at both ends. Okay, but the second way that people typically connect with God is through these things called devotions. And I will tell you, if you are a church insider, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you are not a church insider, if you don't know what this Christian thing is about, devotions sound creepy. And you have no idea what they are. I remember when I went to to college for the first time and people started talking about their devotions or their devotional time, I had no idea what they were talking about. And so I Googled it. And I Googled, what are devotions? And all I got were books. And I bought a couple books and I was like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, how is this remotely moving at all? I read them, and I was like, what? I don't, I don't understand. It took me forever to figure out what Christians meant by devotions. And so if you're in this room and you've been trying to figure that out, number one, you're not alone, but let me try and demystify it for you. The simple short answer as to what are devotions is this. It's just intentional time carved out to be with the Lord. I know, it's kind of disappointing when you put it that way. You're like, oh, that's not nearly as cool as I thought it was. That's all it is. It's just regular time in your week, in your day, of just saying, Lord, I'm going to spend some time with you and reflect on you. And so sometimes that means reading scripture. Sometimes that means praying. Sometimes it's a combination of the two. Sometimes it is reading one of those books, which are really just short mini-sermons. It doesn't really matter what you do. So long as you're taking that time when you learn to just sit. To receive. Look in your bulletins. I gave you one that I started doing a couple weeks ago um, with my wife. Uh, it's right here. It's out of some relationship devotional that Melissa and I started doing. I thought they were really cool. If you want to just try this practice, sometimes it's really helpful to have a guide. Sometimes it's really helpful if somebody else kind of tells you what to do. I would encourage you to just try that this week. Take the space. I will tell you the hardest part of that entire thing is the two minutes of silence. It is so hard. So if you're just in it and you just get there, it's just taking whatever thought comes to mind and just saying, Lord, I give that to you. My workday, I give that to you. That irritating conversation, I give that to you. My stress, I give it to you. It's just taking that That's all it means by silence. And then when you've dumped everything, you're able to sit and return. Okay, so there you go. Those are just a few ways that you can connect. So what we've covered so far is this, and I'm going to try and wrap this up. In order for us to love each other as Jesus has loved us. In order for us to remain in him, we first need to learn how he has loved us. Second, we have to receive that love. But then we also have to practically give that love, right? We we weren't loved to just keep it to ourselves. We were meant to be an extension of him in the world. We were meant to bear fruit. Fruit doesn't benefit the vine, Fruit benefits somebody else elsewhere, if we're just playing with his metaphor, right? You can't keep it to yourself. But in order for us to love as Jesus has loved us, you need to realize Jesus doesn't say, therefore, that we are only to love people like us, or people we like, or people who do what we like. If Jesus treated us that way, we were all doomed. Instead, loving as Jesus has loved us often means loving people who drive us nuts 
And you all know that coworker, huh? They're probably in the room right now. No. <laughs> it's taking those spaces, and you go, well, how do I do that? Look, frankly, that just requires intentional effort and practice. You're not going to master that one overnight. Part of why we serve in church, by the way, if you've ever stopped to think about this, why we encourage you to join ministries is ministries are just an opportunity to practice. Practice loving like Jesus loved us in a safe space where we can encourage and support each other so that we can learn the skills to go out through those doors and do the exact same thing. And so if you've ever wondered about why serve in a ministry, that's a great opportunity for you to grow. You want to learn how to love kids? Go sign up for children's ministry. You want to learn how to love teenagers? Sign up for youth ministry. If that's not your thing, you want to just make people incredibly happy and welcome as they show up to our campus, I'll tell you, this is one of our great needs here, is how do we, how do we connect with people who are just showing up for the first time and making them feel completely loved and cared for as they show up? We're starting a ministry for that. Val Finch is starting it. If you're interested in that, talk to me. But that's it. There's so many ministries, so many ways of getting connected to things going on here, all the way across all the ages. If you're interested, talk to me. I will plug you in. The key is this, though. If we are going to connect with Jesus, if we are going to understand what he has to offer us, we first and foremost need to learn, then receive, and then allow him to shape our lives. That's what Christianity is all about. One last thing, though. One last thing, because I'd be remiss to not add this to you. While this understanding of Christianity is incredibly simple, it's not easy. Not only does it buck the, tr- like the trend in our hearts, it's not the way we typically engage life. Even more than that, as Jesus says, if we live like Jesus, if we love like Jesus, what do you think is going to happen to us? We're going to be treated like Jesus. In fact, in the next few verses, he makes this point explicitly. He says in verse 18, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his masters. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus' point is this. If we live like Jesus, if we love like Jesus, we will experience much of what Jesus experienced. And yes, this way of living seems incredibly simple. It also seems incredibly, uh, I, don't, I don't know what everybody wants. I don't know what the word for that is. It's needed. And yet it's profound. When you start loving people, you start naturally upsetting people. It's just part of what happens. And we see this with Jesus. It ultimately ends, like, ends with his death. And he really doesn't do anything wrong. And the apostles, as they continue to talk about this, you can read this in Paul, you can read this in Peter, they make the exact same point. If we follow him, we will suffer like him. But that's part of the experience here. And I don't mean to make light of this, because here's the thing, you have to count the cost if you're going to be a Christian. And there is a cost. But what you get in turn, the reward that comes from this not only being in connection to the Father, not only learning about his love, but the satisfaction, the hope, the joy, the contentment, the peace, the purpose that comes along with it far outweighs the cost. So church, today, this is my one encouragement to you. Tap into the vine. 
Remain in him. Receive him. Be in sync with him. Learn of his love, how God has loved you. And instead of just moving on, sit in it. Dwell in it. Experience it. Be transformed by it. And out of that, love other people. Let's pray. Father, we give you honor, glory, and praise for who you are, as you are a good God. A God who continues to dumbfound us with your love. I mean, as we even talk and we reflect on this, you didn't love us because you liked us. You didn't love us because we were like you. You didn't love us because we were always likable. You loved us because we mattered to you, because you simply love us, because you created us in your image, and even though we ran from you, you have never given up pursuit of us. Father, I pray that today we would simply stop. We would be so overcome by the truth and the reality of that claim that we would begin to experience it and be transformed by it. And out of receiving your love, Lord, that through every single person in this room, we would begin to bless our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, and even that annoying guy at Costco. We ask all this in Jesus' name.